Hello again, and welcome back to the Slow Flowers Podcast with Deborah Prinsing, episode 404. This is the weekly podcast about American flowers and the people who grow and design with them. It's all about making a conscious choice, and I invite you to join the conversation and the creative community as we discuss the vital topics of saving our domestic flower farms and supporting a floral industry that relies on a safe, seasonal, and local supply of flowers and foliage. This podcast is brought to you by slowflowers.com, the free nationwide online directory to florists, shops, and studios who design with American-grown flowers and to the farms that grow those blooms. It's the conscious choice for buying and sending flowers. And thank you to our lead sponsor, Florist Review Magazine. I'm delighted to serve as contributing editor for Slow Flowers Journal, found in the pages of Florist Review. It's the leading trade magazine in the floral industry and the only independent periodical for the retail, wholesale, and supplier market. Take advantage of the special subscription offer for members of the Slow Flowers community at deborahprinzing.com, where you can also find the show notes for today's episode 404. Today's first sponsor thank you goes to Mayesh Wholesale Florist, returning as a Slow Flowers podcast sponsor. Family-owned since 1978, Mayesh is the premier wedding and event supplier in the U.S., and we're thrilled to partner with Mayesh to promote local and domestic flowers, which they source from farms large and small around the U.S. Learn more at mayesh.com. Our theme for 2019 50 States of Slow Flowers continues today with Melissa Otoot of Massachusetts, Rose of Sharon at Blossom Hill. Listen for my conversation with Melissa at the second portion of this episode. Well, it's the first episode of June, and that means we're kicking it off with this week's unveiling of the American Flowers Week Botanical Couture Collection, which you can see in the pages of Florist Review's June issue. I'm so excited to share this beautiful body of work, nine floral fashion looks, which have been created by talented members around the U.S. Our participation is at the highest ever, with designer flower farmer teams from Alaska, California, Florida, Maine, Michigan, Missouri, Oregon, South Carolina, and Washington. You'll want to check out the links in today's show notes for episode 404 at deborahprinzing.com. There you can find links to free, downloadable social media badges of all the botanical couture looks to use as you promote and highlight American Flowers Week, coming up on June 28th through July 4th. And this might be of interest, for the fourth year, we've produced the American Flowers Week bouquet label. Get in on this program and order labels for your bouquets and other promotions. Labels are available at an affordable price to active Slow Flowers members. We'll be fulfilling your orders until June 21st, so don't put it off. Details are available in today's show notes as well. Speaking of American Flowers Week, today's guest has something brilliant planned for her corner of the country. You'll learn more about that celebration in our conversation. I'm so pleased today to welcome Stacy Denton of Flora Farm and Design Studio in Williams, Oregon. Stacy is, and always has been, a generalist. That's why her job title, Farmer Florist, is hyphenated. She would be bored if she wasn't always trying new things, and those new things include combining unique colors, implementing new floral design techniques, incorporating unusual design elements, using uncommon foliage and arrangements. 
She'd also be bored if she wasn't doing multiple tasks, growing the double-click cosmos for both blooms and seed, harvesting amaranth flowers from the compost pile, and undersowing the September flower beds with cover crop seed, um, all at the same time. Stacy has spent her adult life committed to organic agriculture, first as a home gardener, then as a farm apprentice, farm worker, small CSA farm manager, and currently as a seed grower, flower farmer, and floral designer. This breadth of experience has led her recently to advise on current and future flower seed offerings at Siskiyou Seeds. Stacy likes to be busy and likes to feel as if her life is purposeful. She is inspired by beauty, committed to good follow-through and clear communication. She is motivated by meaningful work and an opportunity to dance. Stacy loves supporting Southern Oregon weddings. When she's not in the field making arrangements or on the dance floor, Stacy is spinning wool and experimenting with natural dyes. At Flora, Stacy's purpose and passion is growing exceptional quality cut flowers and flower seeds. She selects highly desirable cultivars that are prized by brides and wedding designers. She harvests cut flowers at their peak beauty and is always on the lookout for unusual and new varieties. Stacy especially enjoys the shared creative process of growing a particular flower crop with her clients in mind. Please check out the photos and links that Stacy has shared at today's show notes. I'll also have a link to her social places and to her upcoming American Flowers Week event, the Seed to Vase to Table Dinner at Our Family Farms on June 30th. So let's get started. Welcome back to the Slow Flowers Podcast with Deborah Prinzing, and I'm so excited today to introduce Stacy Denton of Flora Farm and Design Studio in William, Oregon. Southern, I was going to say Williams, but it's William, Oregon, right, Stacy? It's Williams with an S at the end. Oh, it is. Okay. Now we know where you are, Southern Oregon. <laughs> Thanks so much for joining me. It's great to connect. Oh, thank you for having me, Deborah. I listen regularly to your podcast and I find I learn so much from your guests. So I'm just glad to be able to be a part of it and maybe share a little slice of my life and my farm and in that way be hoping to cross pollinate with others the good ideas and strategies for success with farming flowers. Oh, absolutely. And and speaking of sharing knowledge, uh, several months ago, I featured your expertise in an article for Johnny Seeds uh, newsletter about, um, you know, just crop planning and succession planting strategies for flower, specialty cut flower farmers. And I, I thought the information you shared was really, really helpful. In fact, I'll put a link to that in today's show notes so people can go back and read what you had to say. Yeah, that sounds great. I um, I appreciated being a part of that. And thank you for inviting me. I did hear from a couple of people who reached out to me after that article. And and I just find it so helpful to be able to to access resources like that because there's so such a long period of time through the trial and error process that takes <laughs> place in, in farming. It's nice to be able to short circuit some of that. That's right. Of time on that. <laughs> Maybe you save someone like nine months of pain and agony <laughs> by sharing I a tip. That. Well, listen, Stacy. give us a snapshot of uh, Flora Farm and Design Studio. By the virtue of the name, you, um, your two talents are revealed, both growing and designing with flowers and probably designing with the flowers that you grow. Yeah, I work primarily with the flowers that I grow when I do design work. And this is my 11th farming season. Wow. It's amazing how... Uh, 
how quickly the time passes, but 11 years specifically growing flowers. I previously had been doing CSA farming, growing vegetables, herbs, and flowers. But um, after the birth of my first child, my first and only child, uh, I decided to really focus my efforts on growing flowers in particular. And um, so as I said, yeah, this is my 11th growing season. And I am in Southern Oregon where uh, we have a six-month rain and six-month dry period. (laughs) That is truly what they call a modified Mediterranean climate, isn't it? Yeah. And it, of course, keeps changing like every other climate uh, zone in the country. This year, we had much warmer winter. And so in years past, I've said that I'm in zone 8B, but this winter was more like qualifying me for being in zone 9. It was much warmer. That's so weird because you also get cold. I mean, in general, Southern Oregon gets colder winters than, uh, like, say, where I am in Seattle. Isn't that correct? Yeah, we definitely get a distinct uh, four season pattern of of uh, weather and um, and we get a fair bit of snow in the winter time. Mm-hmm, but mm-hmm. yeah, it was warmer this winter, not mm-hmm. not too much in the way of uh, temperatures below fifteen degrees. So right. wow, that was a little respite. And of course, things change there out in the field when you don't have those really hard winter. Uh, cold nights to kill back or to knock back the insects. So. Oh my gosh. Yeah. <laughs> Although on, I'm wondering what changes that we're going on a complete side path now, but I think it's interesting to talk about it in terms of climate change. Like have you had to phase some crops out of rotation and then be able to add new ones in because of that shift or is it too early to say? Um, Well, I'm thinking, I haven't had to phase anything out, but I'm thinking about how to be much more conservative with my water use Mm -hmm. because I'm irrigating six months out of the year, uh, you know, for the majority of my growing season, essentially. And, um, And then I'm thinking about what things I might be able to, I might start growing that I didn't think about growing previously. <laughs> like I'm excited actually to be planting some more, um, uh, crops like olives. Mm, I'm, I'm see right. what they're going to do for me. And, um, I'm just, uh, thinking about more Zarek yeah. planting things that are going to be able to withstand drier temperatures or drier drier rain patterns. Right, right. Interesting. Well, when you mentioned that you have, this is your 11th growing season, the first thing that popped into my head is you were a farmer florist before that term was ever uttered by anyone. I mean, you, that's a, over a decade of doing this is, um, you know, I run to a lot of people who are very active in slow flowers now, but they're maybe in their fourth or fifth season. So I look at you and think, wow, you're a veteran uh, with more than 10 years under your belt. Yeah, I, um, I've had kind of an ebb and flow over time with my degree of ground that I'm growing on. Um, before my, jo- my daughter was born, my child was born, I was farming full time. And then, and as I said, I was more focused on vegetables mm-hmm. and herbs in those days. And then I, um, when she was born, realized that I wanted to stay in farming, but I, I really needed to try to access a more niche market. Um, because it was a struggle to yeah. make a living uh, yeah. doing what we've been doing before. And so a friend of mine who lived on the Mendocino Coast, which is where I lived before mm. I relocated to Southern Oregon mm-hmm. uh, 18 years ago, 
um, had had this concept underway that she was exploring with growing flowers, particularly for wedding clientele, because of course the Mendocino Coast is a destination area. And that's my friend Jen at Coastal Posey. She's still oh, yeah. And um, so, yeah, I'd, I'd come across that idea through her and just revisited it when I when my daughter was old enough that I felt like I could dedicate more of my time outside to that kind of work. And and so, yeah, that's what I decided to do was just really focus my uh, gardening farming efforts on growing flowers specifically for weddings. Right. What and it is a niche and it's a value added niche. I, I even if you're just selling the flowers, but adding the design component, um, you know, kind of ups the game a little bit in terms of making it a more profitable way to support yourself. Yeah, exactly. And I've come to appreciate deeply over time how the the time dedicated in my schedule to doing design work for special events, for events that are on my calendar, means that I'm actually going to set aside time for artistic endeavor and mm-hmm. mm-hmm. busy farming season when I can just really get caught up in trying to accomplish all the items on my to-do list. <laughs> yeah, it's a juggle, I'm sure. Um, do you work by yourself or do you have uh, seasonal people who help you on the farm or in the studio? Yeah, I have seasonable, seasonal help. And um, that looks like two people a day a week. I, um, I farm with my partner, my romantic partner, mm-hmm. to love my life. Mm-hmm. Um, his, his name is Don Tipping. And so because of that, we share a labor pool. Oh, so- that's smart. Yeah. He he is focused in his endeavors on growing all kinds of plants for seed. He mm-hmm. has a, a bioregional seed company called Siskiyou Seeds. And so uh, in my work with him, I coordinate support for his efforts. And then likewise, he helps me out. And like I was saying, we have these um, folks that work for both of our farms. And I also employ usually just uh, temporary help when I have large events or I have multiple events on the same day or within the same weekend. So, uh, but if I can, I try to just do the work that, that um, is before me on my own and, um, and just call on help when it's really needed. Yeah. Yeah. I think that's a smart way to do it. So you've mentioned some of the, of the work you're doing. What is um, kind of a, the, range of services that you offer uh, through Flora Farm and Design Studio, or is it super specific to just weddings? Because uh, you, I know you've done in the past CSAs. I don't know if you're doing that now. Yeah, well, weddings are my bread and butter, but I do everything in that regard from providing do-it-yourself buckets for clientele, and that can be wedding the clientele, or I actually just had a phone call this morning for some folks that are looking for arrangements for memorial service coming mm. up in a few weeks. Mm-hmm. So everything from do-it-yourself buckets to full-service floral design for events. And um, I also do custom orders and delivery locally within the county I live, Josephine, or in Jackson County, where Ashland is. Some of your listeners might be familiar with where Ashland is in yeah. Southern Oregon. And in addition to those two things, I do have a very small CSA membership and I do delivery into the town of Jacksonville 
which is also in Jackson County, and then Grants Pass, which is in my county, Josephine. Mm-hmm. And uh, I, so I'm going to those towns, one of those towns, a day a week. And I do some small wholesale mixed bouquets to a couple of local natural food stores. I have some friends in Cave Junction and Grants Pass. And then here in the town of Williams, where I live, that have little natural food stores, I do some um, wholesale mixed bouquets Mm -hmm. with them. (laughs) I've got actually my hand in a lot of pots. I know. You're (laughs) You sound a lot like what I would, how I would describe like when I was an active freelance writer, like all the little patches of the quilt, you know, that make a whole blanket. (laughs) Yeah, exactly. But it's sort of the life of a creative person, I think. And that. And in listening to you, Stacey, I feel like every one of these things that you've mentioned has a, is like rooted in community and in relationships. Like you've, you've got a lot of this business by virtue of having uh, been a neighbor, basically, and, and gotten to know your direct community, it sounds like. People see your flowers and then they think of you first. Yeah, I I like to think so. I I definitely have been very active in my community. I've lived here for 18 years, and it's a pretty small population of folks that we have in Southern Oregon. It's a very kind of remote part, Mm -hmm. I'd say, of the United States, where our closest big city is Portland. That's a four and a half hour drive away. And then Beyond that is San Francisco, which is six hours from here. So Southern Oregon's a little bit isolated from major metropolitan areas in the U.S. And because of that, it's it's a, a smaller community, easier to get to know others. And I've lived here quite a while, so that time builds up, especially as I have a child that's involved with school. And, of course, you get to know families yeah. through raising kids together. And um, mm. so... Yeah, I I really like also to be out and about trying to do collaborative endeavors or work with nonprofit organizations, or I also um, do some teaching here and there. I have, um, you might have seen on my website, I'm offering a couple different classes this year in design. I did a centerpieces workshop, and then also I do some workshops on wreath making in addition to teaching about seed saving with my partner we offer a five-day intensive we call seed academy (laughs) i love it in the fall and we teach people about harvesting and processing seed and plant breeding and plant selection so in that way i'm out and about quite often engaging with people's and people in some of the farther farther off communities from where I live because Williams is a good half an hour from Grants Pass and then another half an hour beyond that gets you to Ashland so things are kind of spread out but but having yeah having the workshops especially a five-day workshop I mean you really are are appealing to people who uh would travel to something special like that I'm I'm imagining yeah we definitely have people come for the Seed Academy from all over the West Coast and sometimes international people, international uh, travelers will come our way as well. Wow. So uh, all of this is happening at your farm, per se. And I I guess I didn't ask you to describe how much land you have or what the configuration or setup is uh, for your portion of, of of your land. Yeah, well, what I have is two fields. So the field where I began is a property that I own 
here in Williams. It's a four acre parcel. It's at about 1500 feet elevation. It's a south facing gentle slope. I'm right across from the herb farm, uh, farm, which for some of your listeners who know about plant medicine, this is one of the national nationally recognized plant medicine companies. They sell tinctures all over the U.S. Oh, wow. Hmm. The farm is right across from my farm. Wow. And and that's where I have a lot of my perennials these days. So right now in flower, I've got, for example, peonies and geum and the columbine and campanula are just starting. Then I've got some of my biennials there. And we'll do also seed crop isolations over there. So I actually don't live there anymore. Mm. I live over at Seven Seeds Farm, my partner's farm. He's got 40 acres and a lot of land to work with. And um, and he gives you a little bit to play with <laughs> to, the, to the fight for it. <laughs> we, we, we find uh, mutually agreeable ways to support <laughs> And uh, yes, yeah, so I have a little a little bit of uh, space here as well. And this property is a little higher in elevation, two thousand feet. And this is on this farm is on a north facing slope. Um, so there's some variation actually between uh, timing on when things begin to mature over at my place because it's lower down and south facing, and when things begin to mature over here. So that's kind of fun because with that change, with that difference in um, maturity, we'll be able to do some planning around succession. Right. That's what I was thinking. Like you have these two distinct harvest times probably, right? Yeah. Yeah. It's usually a week or two behind over here at this, this higher elevation acreage where I live. And, um, so then, um, this land is actually situated in a really special part of the country. I just want to share with people, Southern Oregon is totally amazing. It's the second most biodiverse area in the United States. We have over 30 species of conifers. And because of that, I'm adjacent to uh, some incredible wild lands where I can go and forage for materials. And I really like to be able to bring into my design work if possible, especially I, I find myself doing this with uh, larger wedding orders. I like to bring in forage materials from the wildlands that surround the farm here because then I feel like my design can really express a sort of local, local terroir Yes, in a way that, that I think is helps me and the people that I'm working for to really feel like their weddings or their events are situated in this place. Wow, that's that sounds beautiful. It, it, this land that you're able to forage on is it just lar- part of the larger uh, uncultivated uh, land that you're where you're living and farming, or do you have to get like forest permits to do that? Well, uh, I mostly do it here on mm. Don's farm. As I mentioned, it's 40 acres, and just about mm, maybe six of those acres are in annual crops, and then a good portion of the rest is. Uh, tended wildland, I'll say. I like that. Yeah, I like the way you put that. It's, it's not like you're clear cutting anything. You're probably very. I just hearing your, the way you ex- express your values. You're probably very thoughtful about what you forage and where you forage. Definitely, I'm thinking about where the larger stands of whatever plant I'm looking for can be found, and I'm trying to be mindful and 
um, careful about how I harvest from those those stands, whether that be things like live oak or salal or sword fern or um, I also really like to use local manzanita in in my design work. So there's there's what's here on the farm, and also I have a fair bit of forested acreage at my place, my four acres, half of that is forest. So I harvest from both locations or I forage from both locations. And then on three sides of the farm here, we have BLM. And uh, although it's possible, I technically should be asking for permission I from the people. I definitely ask permission from the plants themselves. <laughs> <laughs> I love as, it. As they go out and I, I harvest in a fairly minimal way from yeah. the the local public land too. Yeah. Um, you have to share some photos of these distinctly Southern Oregon aesthetic uh, designs that you've done because I can just, I've been to Southern Oregon. It is kind of a extreme, extreme beauty that, that I think of in terms of the landscape. And um, just to see that expressed in, with your floral design must be gorgeous. I'm I know what I've seen on your website, but would you share some some of your favorite projects with sure. us? Oh, that'd be great. Yeah. Do you have high tunnels or greenhouses or um, any kind of protection? Yes. I am so grateful. I just received one of these USDA grants for a high tunnel. And so I completed at the beginning of this month two small tunnels that are 50 foot in length. One is... 30 feet, 30 feet wide and another is 20 feet wide. And I, I already had a, a small tunnel. So I think that brings my, it's funny, <laughs> I think that my, my square footage under plastic is probably now larger than my cottage that I, that I <laughs> built on my farm. <laughs> and I, cut, I cut you off. You said it's, you think it's uh, the square footage under plastic is bigger than the co- the cottage. Is it where you live or where your studio? Where that that I built on my farm. I don't currently live there, but that's where I, uh, <laughs> I lived previously. And um, and then here over at Seven Seeds, we have a couple of high tunnels too. So I, I I'm able to utilize some portion of the space here at Seven Seeds as well as the the area under cover at my farm flora. And, um, and then I also use low tunnels. Wow. So you're just getting a sense of season extension. What is your season? Uh, when does it roughly begin and how late can you actually go? Yeah, I start with harvesting anemones primarily, uh, in March. They're, they're definitely the earliest and Mm -hmm. then it gives way to ranunculus and, and then tulips. And so, yeah, March is my starting point. And usually we experience here uh, our first frost in the, the first or second week of October. So uh, about that time, I'm ready to call a good uh, with my fresh harvest. But I, during the course of the season, am drying as I go any leftover flowers or greenery from the farm. So I often am doing after after my fresh cut is done in October, I'm often still crafting with flowers, making wreaths and other items with everlasting flowers mm. all, through the, all through the winter. I can continue, of course, to harvest from forage from wildlands, and I do so for some clients that want to do winter holiday decorating. Sure. Yeah, that's great. My fresh cut is is primarily done in October. Yeah, I mean you're 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 finding 
design material growing or or foraging at all, 12 months of the year, it sounds like. It could be. I really, I really try to uh, pull things back a little bit in after that first hard frost. And, <laughs> You're probably so ready for it. <laughs> yeah, and then my my work actually shifts into the indoor plant processing work of cleaning seed. So mm. that's what I'm doing mostly November mm. through February. That's cool. Well, you've talked about being influenced by. Um, it's at Jen from Coastal Posies in Mendocino, and um, yeah. she I, I've met her. She taught a, a class uh, at the San Francisco Flower and Garden Show several years ago where I ran the floral stage, and she did it on um, native California flora in uh, like a, a runner or garland kind of application. It was stunning. So I, I learned a little bit about her philosophy, and I could see where some of those that kind of focus on place is really you brought with you when you started Flora Farm, but what was your background? Uh, are, you know, did you study, are you come more from horticulture or more from art or, or neither? I guess neither. You know, my background is, in, I, I am a lover of plants. I'll say that first off. I found my love for the natural world. It awoke in me as a high school youth. I My family moved from Southern California to Northern Arizona. We lived in Sedona during my high school years. Oh, wow. and I got to learn what it was to live in a place with exquisite natural beauty and did a lot of hiking and swimming in the creeks and began my first foraging of plant materials during that time, harvesting prickly pear cactus, <laughs> <laughs> getting lots of prickles stuck in my hands as I tried to figure out how to to uh, cook with wild nopales and then uh, harvesting yucca flower. Anyway, then after high school, I moved to Seattle, your area. Oh, wow. And I studied ecology during college. And uh, in that time, had this opportunity to study abroad for a little bit in Costa Rica, where I was studying tropical biology and ecology, and I got turned on to this concept expressed through the work of the folks at Food First out of mm. Berkeley mm-hmm. about biodiversity being something that could be managed as sort of separate islands where humans shouldn't go, where we should just kind of preserve them, preserve the natural world and keep it as a refuge for flora and fauna. Um, or we could think about how humans could interact with their natural environments and do so in a way that meets their needs for food and for shelter and for medicine. And because I came into that into those concepts at that time of my life, I started really thinking about where I wanted to go with what I had learned in college. And mm-hmm. I was asking myself a lot where does food come from and how do our human communities interact with food production? And from that place, I really got excited about the concepts behind permaculture. I went and ended up apprenticing with the Bullock Brothers on Orcas Island and learning about how to design human settlements so that they modeled the principles uh, found in natural systems and so I was, uh, from there, from my studies in permaculture, mm-hmm. looking for a way to then 
express what my vocation might be. And I got really turned on by the CSA movement, Community Supported Agriculture, and started really studying about the roots of that and was introduced to that, the concept there that, that, um, Communities could be supporting farmers. If we're not going to grow food ourselves, we could be supporting farmers to grow food for us and then come together around that food production in a way that meets our needs as humans, but also is honoring the the complexity and the importance of the natural ecosystems. And so I uh, wanted to then take what I had learned and apprenticing and in my studies and try to apply it for myself and a couple of friends and I moved to Oregon. That's when we left the Mendocino area. Mm -hmm. I'd been there for a little while dabbling and helping to run a small CSA bicycle powered (laughs) Navarre near Albion. We, a couple of friends and I moved to the, to Williams to start a nonprofit farm and education center and the nonprofit owned the land, and I was just trying to help create with my friends a, a, an alternative model of land tenure in, in farming. So instead of just land being owned privately, in this case, we set up a nonprofit organization that would own title or hold title to this land. And we were able to work with an organization called the Equity Trust to secure uh, conservation and agricultural easement on the property to preserve that farm as a working farm that would provide food or sustainability education to the broader community in perpetuity. So is this still in existence? It is. It's called White Oak Farm and Education Center, and it's here in Williams, where I live. Oh, that's so neat. And and are you involved anymore, or is it just one of those things that you, um, you burst and are now you can watch watch it, uh, you know, live live successfully on after you've left? Yeah, the latter. I have oh. my friends. A couple of my friends still run the nonprofit organization and run the farm, uh, but I'm no longer very involved. I, I'm just supporting from a distance. Yeah, I love it. <laughs> There's such a common thread, though, to what you're doing today in terms of your like land stewardship and your, your I'm assuming, organic practices. And, mm-hmm. you know, when you said you didn't have a horticulture background, then you told me you had an ecology, you studied ecology. I'm like, okay, well, that's exactly where her, that's where her her spark of of passion came from is just wanting to know how this world and the earth works and supporting it rather than you know adding to it rather than taking away from it yeah i really have been called in my life to try to live out a a way that ex- that puts my ideals into practice and so Although I'm no longer working with a nonprofit farm, an education center, I'm still doing what I can to try to share with others what I've learned about regenerative agriculture along the way. And I feel like it's just important that we think about how we do how we manage our farms so that they become systems that thrive even more than they were 
before we came along. Mm. So that's what I'm trying to do. I've just shifted out of growing food. I mean, we still are homesteading here and growing a lot of our own food, but I'm not commercially growing food. I'm instead growing flowers and flower seeds. I love it. Yeah, I think that's exciting. Well, one of the things, one of the reasons I wanted to have you on at the beginning of June, Stacey, we've been talking about this pod, recording this podcast for a while, is that we're kind of kicking off the lead up to American Flowers Week, which starts June 28th and goes through July 4th. And you told me a couple months ago that you were planning to do a really fun event during American Flowers Week. And I wanted to hear more about it and let people know what you're up to, uh, because there's still time to uh, for people to participate and attend or be inspired to do something similar in another region around the country. So uh, I don't know. L- l- give us the story. I-, I-, I don't know where to start. Uh, what what where did you get this idea? Well, I, of course, as I mentioned, have been listening to your podcast, so I came across your the concept of American Flowers Week, which I think is just a great opportunity to help spread the word about the importance of buying flowers that are grown in the United States. And um, I've been doing some other work trying to bring together other flower farmers here in Southern Oregon. And we had recently, I guess last winter, a meetup where there were, I think, about 10 flower farmers in the room. There's, of course, been a very big renaissance in the the growing of cut flowers, mm-hmm. not, just, not just nationally, but very specifically here in our area where agriculture is such an important part of the landscape. And And so sitting in this room with folks I was talking about, hey, maybe we could do some event together. And I have I love I love farm to table mm-hmm. dinners because I think especially where I live, there's such rich local food cuisine. We have meat producers, we have cheese makers, we have uh beekeepers, we have folks that are foraging from the forest for wild foods we have an incredible local food movement that Mm -hmm. of course is very much in keeping with the slow foods concept and I really like being able to come together with other farmers and so there have been a few dinners hosted by this local nonprofit organization. It's called Our Family Farms. They advocate for farms, farmers, and seed in our area. Oh, wow. Yeah, they they were born out of the effort to and successful creation of a GE free zone, a, a GE seed sanctuary in Jackson County and then Josephine County. And so... Can I just stop you for there for a sec? But, I, I G... When I heard you say G, I thought you were going to say like anti-GMO, but is it something similar to that? What does GE stand for? Genetically engineered. So genetically engineered free seed sanctuary. This is just one of the terms people use. So we have a ban in Jackson County, the adjacent county to where I live, and no GMO uh, seed can be grown there. We had that same ban in Josephine, but unfortunately got overturned in the courts. Uh, not to go too far down that path, I wanted to just share that this organization was born out of that local grassroots effort to create mm. uh, GMO-free zones. Thank and, you. Thank you for that. Now we've learned a new term. <laughs> yeah. I hope I got it right. And 
So they've been hosting a couple dinner dinners for the past few years, and I've been providing flowers for a couple of those dinners and attending them and seeing all my farmer friends who I'm always too busy to see during the growing season at these dinners. So it's really fun to come together with other farmers and to just be wowed by what we produce in our bioregion, on our farms, and then also the artistry that exists exhibited by the chefs that bring together all these diverse ingredients and so I thought to myself wow this would be a great thing to host because I love I love good food and I really appreciate when what's called farm to table is truly as authentically farm to table as possible right and uh so I thought, but let's let's definitely add this flower component in some way to highlight the abundance of local seasonal flowers in the Rogue Valley. In addition to the incredible organic food producers we have, we have a lot of great flower growers. So, oh, wonderful. So I was at this meeting. I mentioned this event concept, and I've just kind of run with it. And we have, I think, six or seven collaborating farms that are going to help bring together this it's being called a seed to vase to table dinner love it love yeah. it how exciting i wish i could come <laughs> yeah that would be so fun to have you there. it's such but, a but it's it's you said it's june 30th right in the 30th oh that's the same night we have our, our slow flowers dinner on the farm in minnesota before the summit so we'll have to like facetime each other during the dinner okay so we can that's, see what each other's doing sounds good we'll we'll raise a glass to you uh, <laughs> during during our dinner and and vice I'm, versa <laughs> thanks good yeah and there's going to be all kinds of possibilities in terms of what might fill that glass. I want to share with folks the chef that's going to be creating the menu. His name is Keith Weitzman, and he's at Vin Farm, which is a tasting room, uh, charcuterie, and creamery offering from Wooldridge Winery, which is a local winery here in the Applegate Valley. And oh my gosh. anyway, so Keith is going to be our chef for the evening, taking us on this culinary journey through multiple courses where an edible flower will be one of the dominant flavor features of each course. <laughs> and in addition to these various courses with edible flowers, he's going to be making some floral sodas. Lovely. So maybe when we raise our glass to you, we'll have a, a floral soda elixir in our glass or wonderful. a local wine or a local cider, hard cider. So that's what we're working towards. Mm. And where will this be? This will take place here at Seven Seeds Farm where I live. Wow, that is so exciting. So you're... Um... You said you're going to have the information on your website that we can send people to to find out more and and be able to attend. I hope. Yeah, there'll be a little. There is information on my website, and then also people can purchase tickets actually through ourfamilyfarms.org. If you go into their news and upcoming events section oh, of their website. Great. Oh, that's great. Yeah, we'll put a link to that in the show notes at deborahprinzing.com for today's episode. Um, that is going to be fabulous. You promise to take photos because I'd love to share this as a story, uh, you know, especially for two. 2020 when we're starting to give people ideas of what they can do to to create you know some kind of event celebrating local flowers this sounds really well i mean there's farm to table dinners all over the place so it's not like you came up with this idea but you're putting your own unique 
highly, like hyper-local imprint on it. And it sounds like the people who have evolved are just bringing the, the best, the best that they're producing as well. That's, my mouth is watering. It sounds wonderful. <laughs> yeah, we have a photographer lined up for sure. In fact, her name is Anne Nguyen, and she has been a part of this other project I want to just briefly mention, which sure. I, I think is an idea worth sharing. We have put together a collaboration of four flower farmers here in Southern Oregon, and we have had beautiful images taken by Anne of each of our farms and we've created a gallery of these images they're they're practically fine art in and of themselves beautifully mounted canvas images that we're rotating our gallery through different towns in southern oregon at different locations it's currently at the medford food co-op on display there for the next few months and so it's it highlights our farms and there's an explanatory board along with the show that describes how 80% of the flowers sold in the United States are grown outside of the U.S. But despite that, we have an abundance of local seasonal and sustainable or, or organically grown flowers available to people for local purchase. And so we're just trying to spread the word that way through the beauty of these images and the beauty of the farm that speaks louder really than any words I could ever say for the reasons behind supporting locally grown and, and locally grown flowers in particular. Wow. Oh my gosh, Stacey, you are doing so many creative things. I'm really inspired. I know our listeners will be inspired too. I guess what I'm, my takeaway that I'm hearing from you is to think big and think about how to lead with beauty and maybe persuade people, uh, you know, through this, sensory experience more than, I don't know, like I used to do, get people, you know, to feel guilty about, you know, buying flowers that weren't local. And like, that's not the way to persuade people. The flowers can persuade you themselves if, if they're just presented correctly with, as you're doing, storytelling and, um, you know, making it like the human connection with your community. It sounds, sounds great. And is this exhibit, uh, is there a link to that online uh, from your website? Or how can people learn more about the uh, photography? Hmm, there, That's a good idea. I should put a, a page on my website showcasing the gallery. I don't at present. People can visit my Instagram account. I've got a couple of the images there in my, oh. in my Instagram feed. Uh, awesome. Yeah, we'll is, do that. Yeah, at Flora Organic Flowers. And yeah, beyond just the the importance of the story and the human connection, I just want to emphasize that I think that beauty is an essential part of human civilization. And we all sort of know this as we honor our museums and our art, art galleries, and we know how important artists are to, to culture. And I think that that's where we come forward here as farmers we're offering this connection between people and the natural world that evokes a very sublime and essential part of who we are as as mm. humans so. mm. I couldn't agree more Stacey Denton I feel very uplifted having spoken with you for the last 30-40 minutes I hope our listeners uh, realize how lucky they are to have heard your story and and also just come alongside your journey of all the 
amazing opportunities that you're creating for yourselves and for yourself and with other flower farmers. It's really inspiring. Uh, thanks. You, you, you honor me with those words, Deborah. And I just am grateful to be a part of the broader community of folks that are doing, doing this work because I am constantly learning and growing from what I see amongst people's, uh, social media feeds or the <laughs> the books that they're writing or the words that they offer through podcasts like yours. So, oh. so I'm glad to be a part of that. Oh, that's great. Thank you so much. And I wish you a lot of luck for um, this amazing uh, dinner that you're going to have. And we'll um, hopefully get some people interested in taking the trip down to Williams, Oregon to attend. Um, take great care and I'll talk to you soon. Thank you, Deborah. Be well. so much for joining my conversation with Stacy Denton, whose intentional approach to her work is so inspiring. Our next sponsor thanks this week goes to Northwest Green Panels. Based in Madras, Oregon, Northwest Green Panels designs and constructs a wide array of wood-framed greenhouses, offering versatility, style, and durability. Their greenhouses are 100% Oregon-made, using twin-wall polycarbonate manufactured in Wisconsin, making Northwest Green Panel structures a great value for the backyard. The 8x8-foot modern slant greenhouse has become the essential hub of my cutting garden. Check out photos of my greenhouse in today's show notes or visit northwestgreenpanels.com to see more. That's nwgreenpanels.com. And now let's visit the state of Massachusetts and meet Melissa Otout of Rose of Sharon at Blossom Hill in Dunstable. She's part of our 50 States of Slow Flower series. The Rose of Sharon at Blossom Hill is a full service flower and gift shop, as well as a specialty cut flower farm. The shop specializes in unique custom designed living gifts and cut flower arrangements. Melissa's property is a magical destination flower farm as well. She uses organic and sustainable growing practices to yield seasonal beauties, including lisianthus, sunflowers, hydrangea, dahlias, tuberoses, yarrow, delphinium, larkspur, chocolate cosmos, just to name a few. Well, you'll hear more in our conversations, so let's jump right in and hear more about Melissa's floral journey. so excited today to be talking about Massachusetts as part of our 50 States of Slow Flowers series. And I want to welcome my guest from Massachusetts, Melissa Otoot of Rose of Sharon at Blossom Hill. Hi, Melissa. Hi, how are you? I'm great. Thanks for saying yes when I asked you to be part of this. Oh, no, I was so psyched that you asked. <laughs> well, you've been a, a really long time involved member of Slow Flowers. And um, I'm just delighted to introduce you and your story to our podcast listeners today. First of all, put put your business on the map. Where are you? And Massachusetts is a big state. Where do you land in all of that? So we are in Dunstable, Massachusetts, and that um, borders Nashua, New Hampshire, um, Groton, Massachusetts, Westford. So we're north. Um, okay. And yeah. Deep in, About 30 minutes outside of Boston. Okay, deep in New England. 
Yes. Yep. In cow country, and <laughs> cow land. Oh, is it? Yeah. So, so is it? Is your market more uh, ex-urban or suburban, or how would you describe it? I would say it's more suburban, but our little town itself is really just like a cow town. Mm. Um, and I honestly had never been in Dunstable before I bought the property, but um, it's just an adorable location that we we live on the property, and it's a very old shop that's been here for thirty two years. So. We, our customers range for, we do have locals, but we also have a lot of people traveling through the town that, wow. um, that are more city people. So yeah, we get a, we, we have a lot of different kinds of customers. Well, the photos are really charming. And so what came first, Rose of Sharon or Blossom Hill? Describe like what, cause it's an unusual name. What does it all encompass? It definitely is. So it totally is an unusual name. And I feel like I confuse people because when I bought the property, it was an existing shop, as I said, and it had been here for 30 years and the uh, owner was retiring and it was the Rose of Sharon. Mm. And I, when I first bought it, wanted, thought I'd put my own name on it and I named it Blossom Hill. Mm. Well, when I realized that the name recognition was already here and people love the shop and, and the woman who works with me now has been here 32 years, everybody knows her. People would have freaked out if I changed the name. So I kind of just tagged my Blossom Hill on and it confused everyone, and it still does, but it's there. It's on my logo. It's on everything. And it's I call Blossom Hill the part that's my growing, the growing part of the business. Kind that, of, yeah, and that, may, and that is not really uncommon. There are a lot of farmer florists who kind of rebrand the retail, or excuse me, their farm is one name, and then their design studio or, or retail shop is another name. So don't beat yourself okay, up. Good. <laughs> <laughs> good. good to know. But I have to give yeah. you, I have to compliment you on, you know, sometimes we get so dug in on a decision that if, even if all the evidence is showing us that maybe we jumped too quickly or, you know, made a rash decision and then we don't ever want to back out and back it out. And you did that by honoring kind of your customers and what they wanted, right? Exactly. Yeah, it's true. I appreciate, yeah, you noticing that because yes, there is a lot of, um, things that we kept that I kept the same that I might not have had I started from scratch. Um, but yes, yeah, mm-hmm. we catered to a lot of different. Yeah. So, but, but we've also turned a lot of people into loving the fresh cuts and, and the locally grown. So, yeah. Oh, so how does that come together? The, tradi- <laughs> the, the, the established retail flower shop when you bought it, you said six years ago, right? I bought it six years ago, okay. my husband and I. Yep. But it had been around but forever, it, right? Forever, for like 30 years, yeah. So, um, And it's actually an old building that was built in like 1890, so it's a very charming location. But anyhow, yeah, at that point it was all – actually the previous owner did grow some, just like some sunflowers and zinnias and things like that. Mm-hmm. Um, but he had another location, so he wasn't able to grow as much as he would have liked. So when I bought it and wanted to clear land and grow more, he was very, very excited. In fact, he just came back from – New Jersey to help us plant our field because he's totally oh. into it and like to see the property continue and change and grow. So, oh, yeah. that's really heartwarming. Um, it's awesome. So when you when you bought the shop, though, it sounds like it might have been a little bit more of conventional floristry, like with buying a lot of stuff at the Boston flower market Definitely. and imports yes. and that sort of thing. Yes, absolutely. And and as you know, the market's changed a lot and what brides want and uh, actually what people want just on a daily basis has changed. But um, I actually, I, I ended, I worked at um, Wollum Gardens in Virginia. You I did? don't know if you know. I didn't know that. So that's yeah. how I, 
Yeah, no. so that's how I started. That was, so that was in like 1997. My husband, actually, he was my boyfriend at the time. His uncle owns that. So I was, you know, 20, I don't know, 25, 26 years old and totally like didn't know what I was going to do with my life. And I, um, I visited his farm and ended up staying there because his <laughs> intern had left. <laughs> do you mean Bob? So I just totally you mean, found left. You yeah. mean Bob Wollum? Bob Wollum, yes. <laughs> Bob Wollum. I get, I get tips from Bob all the time. I learn from Bob. Like, Oh, wow. Yeah. Well, do you know, Bob has, Bob has been a guest on this podcast. So it's, this is really cool. Well, I can't wait to tell him that, uh, <laughs> I guess, awesome. what are you, his niece-in-law or something like that? I guess so. Exactly. <laughs> yeah. I always just call him my uncle because I'm whatever yeah, family. him and just like that he taught me as much as he did. So yeah, but oh, yeah, in-laws. Is so, it. so we're all over the map here. So you kind of were in your twenties, you stumbled into meeting this pretty experienced flower farmer who got kind of what captured your imagination about flowers in general, or were you already working as a florist? I was not working as a florist. So when I moved there, I, um, I, I ended up coming back and saying, okay, this is what I want to do. Absolutely. And everybody said, you can't grow flowers in Massachusetts because as you know, Virginia has a much longer mm. growing season mm-hmm. than we do. Mm-hmm. And I, and if somebody tells me I can't do something, of course I'm going to do it. So wow. I've been growing flowers ever since then and, and on our plot in Groton. And then just like I said, doing farmer's markets and, and weddings on the side um, and always working in greenhouses to support my flower habit. <laughs> and then I finally, I finally bought this place and now it's just full time all day, every day. And, and I love it. So. Yeah. It sounds like you basically bought yourself two jobs instead of one because you're farming Definitely. and you have retail flower shop. They're both so intense. Exactly. And it, but it's perfect because obviously I have a source to, to sell my flowers. Mm-hmm. Um, I, I don't, I do have like extra, I do have extra surplus at the end of the season and I don't try to sell to, um, to other vendors and I should, but, mm. um, so I just kind of just sell through the shop. Yeah. Well, I mean, that's, that's your core business. So I can see where you have to make some decisions about that. Maybe future development, you can, it'd be cool to have a wholesale customer outside your market, you know, someone who'd be willing to come, you know, do a pickup or something or. Absolutely. Yeah, exactly. Because that's the thing. You're obviously pushed, you know, straight for time, um, you know, yeah. at the peak season when I have extra flowers, I'm not about to go try to sell that. I don't have the time to <laughs> yeah. go do that. Yeah. So, but there is a need for them. And, and, and as far as other growers, I don't get as involved as I'd like to in, in the Association of Cut Flower Growers, like things like that. Mm-hmm. But I do know that there are small there are small farms in Massachusetts. I wish I knew more about them, but they're, we're out there, you know? So Melissa, you're, um, you're just, so give me a finish the snapshot of, of Rose of Sharon at Blossom Hill. The shop is this historic old building on property that you and your husband also live there. And then is that, is that where you also farm? Yes. So yeah, it's all right here. Wow. How much acreage do you have? So we have four acres and we only grow in about an acre and a half right mm, now. Only. Yeah. That's enough to keep oh, anybody busy. <laughs> I know. Well, people don't. Yeah. If you, if you know this industry, you know that that's a lot. But I think a lot of people like, for example, Bob Willem is growing on 11 acres. Mm-hmm. I mean, it's so impressive. But mm-hmm. but yeah, for me, uh, one, one and a half is actually a fair amount for me right now. Right, so. right. So what are your, I mean, yes, Massachusetts is a colder zone and a shorter growing season, but what are you kind of your, your featured um, or favorite or, or successful uh, varieties? So I'm obsessed with dahlias. 
so we just do a ton of tubers yeah. as well as as the karma dahlias. Um, our brides are obsessed with dahlias too, so it's one of the reasons we started doing it. Um, but we do we do a fair amount of um, we have some woodies, we have hydrangea, viburnum, but we have a pretty extensive list. I do kind of grow a little bit of everything. Um, I have goals like it like Bob was able to grow lysianthus beautifully in Virginia. And I've always tried ever since I started to grow nice lysianthus here. And it's very difficult in our soil. So there are certain things that I just try and there are some things that I don't have, have to try as hard. Mm -hmm. Um, Yeah. But we have, yeah. Interesting. So the lysianthus, do you need to, um, would you try again if you had a high tunnel or a a greenhouse or is it just not a crop for you? No, I definitely should. Do the t- I should try the tunnels. I should, I, and if I ever win the lottery, I'll have a greenhouse <laughs> in a heartbeat. <laughs> but, but yeah, no. It, it, if I tried a little bit, I, I do buy them in as plugs, and I do have some luck. But I guess I'm c- sort of comparing, you know, what he grew, and and the soil is just so different that they get really thick stems and just gorgeous, just beautiful, beautiful plants and yeah. I and it's difficult here but I, I continue to try and like you said yeah that that does make sense I would definitely do that in the future and I always say that I'm going to and I you know oh you know how it is your plate sounds so full and your cup sounds like it's running over so no no stress or guilt or judgment <laughs> for me I, I right <laughs> what I like is like you you obviously identified one of your sweet spots which is dahlias and you know that you can probably grow every sell everything you grow because it's such a beloved wedding flower. It doesn't ship well. And your, exactly. your flowers are going a few paces from the field to the studio. So they're like probably the most per- per- perfect dahlias you've ever seen. Yeah, That's they are. Neat. They are gorgeous. And our brides totally appreciate them. And especially a lot of the younger brides really appreciate that it's a fresh cut, that it's not being shipped. Um, and it's really cool to see young people into that, you know. Yeah, well, that that kind of leads to to my question about what's happening on the local landscape. So, uh, your shop is sounds like it's a full service shop. You're not just doing weddings, right? No, definitely not. No, we do everything. We mm. do, you name it. But yeah. a lot of funeral work, um, a lot of walk-in business, a lot of events. But we also do just regular day to day. We have you know specials. I actually inherited a rose special that's. Um, Nine ninety five. <laughs> Not my favorite tell, thing in the world. <laughs> tell me about that. You inherited it. Nine, so, <laughs> so I well, it was a, a special that he had going forever. So it's nine ninety five for a dozen roses. But as you know, being the slow flower founder, aren't you? Yeah. Did you, did you start? <laughs> So, you as you know, I I can't sell them for that price, American grown. So they're not, they're from Ecuador and they're not, you know, I opened the box and I feel like fumes hit me in the face and I probably should not be saying this on a podcast, but I don't like it. And I, and I do it um, because my customers are, I have some older customers that would throw a fit if I didn't. Um, yeah. Well, and it gets people in the door yeah. and it, it starts conversations and it, and things change. So, but I, as of now, I do have the bro special. No, and I <laughs> think that's, but, but that's okay. No guilt for me because I feel like, yeah, I feel like there's a really, and I've fallen into this, this temptation to, to bash imports and I've decided it's just, I just don't want to spend my energy being negative about, about imports. They're going to be with us it's the backbone of this industry. And then you come along and have this excited, you know, bride who wants all your local dahlias. And it kind of makes up for some of those other compromises that you might feel like you have to make just to be in the community. 
Definitely. Definitely. That does help. <laughs> it helps with the guilt. But yeah, I mean, it's like you can't, it's like reading after reading Flower Confidential. You want everyone to know. And that's why I love Slow Flowers because you're not only a tool for people to find people like us, but you're also a great uh, reference. Like a, instead of me just bashing, you know, Ecuadorian right. roses. Right. I I can say there, this is actually a thing. There are people into this. It's a movement and, and, <laughs> and you know, <laughs> Yeah. Point them your direction and then they get it. And it's really, it's cool. It's a yeah. tangible thing at that point. And well, Melissa, anyhow, I appreciate it. Yeah. Thank you. Are you, I mean, do you even have, um, is anyone growing roses commercially in Massachusetts or New England? Um, or is it all super like, like niche, niche market, like uh, people with garden roses and not, nothing more than that? That's it. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Not that I know of. Yeah. And, uh, how, and even that's super hard. Yeah. Here. Yeah, that's what I've heard. And I, I didn't mean to cut you off. Are you growing roses at all yourself? I always say that I'm going to. And when <laughs> I go to purchase the plants, I'm like, I can't. I can't put my energy into that because I know I know that it's a lot of work. And I just, because I have limited space, I, I'm, every year I say I'm going to and I don't. Wow. So they are, they're just amazing. They're, and I always get them from California. I do mm -hmm. get them American grown, mm -hmm. but, I, but no, I yeah. have not attempted yeah. And regardless, they're never going to be 9.95 for domestic roses. True. So, you don't even <laughs> true. you don't want to chase you don't want to chase the lowest price point anyway. So I I understand exactly. that. Yeah. Interesting. Yeah, my si my sign would say single rose 9.95. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> and that probably might not pull people in as much. <laughs> wow. Well, I'm so intrigued about how you're you've built this business and it sounds like before you bought the retail shop, you worked in both growing and floristry. Uh, but is this the first time you've owned a retail shop or worked in one? It is. Mm -hmm. It is. Um, well, actually, I've, I've worked in others. I've worked in garden centers that had florists. So I sure. worked at Lexington Gardens for years. And then I was a manager at, um, at Weston Nurseries in Chelmsford for a while. So I always worked in greenhouses. And then, like I said, did this on the side. So, but this is the first time that I, and I wasn't looking to buy the business. It's sort of, I stumbled upon it and it's perfect for us. It's wow. Yeah. That's, amazing. that's a big change after being in the industry for so long. And it sounds, but it sounds like having that greenhouse background and farming background, you, you were ready to take Very on, helpful. you were ready to take on another facet, but you wanted to keep the growing as part of, of your business. You couldn't just, exactly. you probably wouldn't be happy with, with a retail shop alone. Did you say I would be or would not? Be? I, I can't imagine you would be. I feel like you'd, you'd no, be kind of no, missing something. You're right. No, it's funny because when I saw the brochure, like that it described the property and stuff, it was the little tiny growing, whoever put that on the brochure was what, sold me I was like I have I have to go check this place out because they had a little area for growing that was on the back page of the brochure and I'm like that's it if you can it's a shop and you can grow there and live there I'm in you know yeah. Oh, you're like an oh, you're like an old fashioned florist now. The ones that they used to have, you know, <laughs> exactly. back in the day. I love it. Where did you move there from? So just from Groton. Oh, you said that. Groton, yeah. Massachusetts, which is a town over. Oh, wow. Well, it's sort of a, yeah. a sort of a big lifestyle change for you, but you have six years in, and you're you're probably very very busy. You mentioned that your summers are crazy with farming and weddings. 
Definitely. Yes. I have the good fortune of being busy all the time. It's it's wonderful. Wow. Yeah. I love it. You know, in this whole industry where people are wringing their hands about retail, mom and pop, brick and mortar, retail flower shops going out of business, you're kind of going the opposite direction and proving that it can be done. Yeah. It's just on your own terms. True. And I also, I feel like I had, obviously I had some paint strokes on this canvas when I bought it. I mean, it's ador- the place is adorable. So it was already like laid out for me, but mm. then it's, I hopefully I'm improving it, but, but yeah, it's not, um, it's not just a little, I, whatever. I feel fortunate that it's not in a strip mall. I know that there are many yep. successful florists that are strip malls, but I, I feel very fortunate for our location yeah. and that we're close to the city as well. Um, so we do do events in the city and stuff. Uh-huh. So, yeah. It's like, yes, like, feel lucky. like, the place is kind of the character of the business. It sounds like I would love, I'd love to have you send us some photos to share so we can um, get people interested in the charm of Rose of Sharon at Blossom Hill, even though that's a mouthful. And uh, maybe, (laughs) maybe you could share some photos of your, some of your uh, growing area and uh, designs so we can get an idea of what's going on in your corner of Massachusetts. I'd love to visit sometime. It would be so much fun to oh, see what you're it. doing. Um, what else would you like to share before we sign off? Anything that you want to let people know about? Not, I mean, I guess I just, I, talking to you, like when you, when you had called originally, I, I realized that just looking back, I was so excited about this when I started it at Willem, you know, Willem Gardens. 24 years ago and I'm like more excited now. So Mm. I just, because people, because of people like you and other people that are way into the locally grown, it's just, it's just exciting. And it does, it's not losing momentum. It's gaining momentum. And it's just, it's, it's a good time to be in this industry. I think. It's really great to hear such an optimistic um, prognosis versus, you know, being burnt out and jaded and cynical. I love your enthusiasm and it's just what I needed to hear today. Um, Thank you so much, Melissa. I I know we didn't really talk a ton about what's happening in Massachusetts, but we talked about what's happening in your corner of Massachusetts and um, you're really rocking it. So I'm I'm really happy (laughs) that people can get to meet you and hear your story. Thank you so much. I appreciate you having me on. You bet. Thanks, Melissa. (laughs) Okay. Bye-bye. joining me as I spoke with Stacy and Melissa about their commitment to the Slow Flowers movement and how they have woven flowers into every thread and every fabric of their lives. I'm so grateful to you for joining me and for spending your time listening to the Slow Flowers podcast. Thank you to our entire community of flower farmers and floral designers who together define the Slow Flowers movement. As our cause gains more supporters and more passionate participants who believe in the importance of the American cut flower industry, the momentum is contagious. I know you feel it too. I value your support and invite you to show your thanks with a donation to support my ongoing advocacy, education, and outreach activities. You can find the donate button in the column to the right at deborahprincing.com. 
Our final sponsor thanks today goes to the Seattle Wholesale Growers Market, a farmer-owned cooperative committed to providing the very best the Pacific Northwest has to offer in cut flowers, foliages, and plants. The Growers Market's mission is to foster a vibrant marketplace that sustains local flower farms and provides top quality products and services to the local floral industry. Visit them at seattlewholesalegrowersmarket.com. And if you're in the neighborhood, the market is hosting a very fun event on Wednesday, June 19th, all about edible flowers. I'll have a link to those details in today's show notes as well. I'm so excited about the upcoming Slow Flower Summit, and I hope you can join me and our vibrant and engaging lineup of presenters on July 1st and 2nd in St. Paul, Minnesota. The countdown has begun with just shy of one month to go. I hope to see you there. Subscribe to the Slow Flower Summit newsletter for last minute news and details and announcements. You can find the sign up link in today's show notes at deborahprinzing.com or just go to slowflowersummit.com to sign up. The Slow Flowers podcast has been downloaded more than 475,000 times by listeners like you. Thank you for listening, commenting, and sharing. It means so much. I'm Deborah Prinzing, host and producer of the Slow Flowers podcast. Next week, you're invited to join me in putting more American-grown flowers on the table, one vase at a time. And if you like what you hear, please consider logging onto iTunes and posting a listener review. The content and opinions expressed here are either mine alone or those of my guests alone, independent of any podcast sponsor or other person, company, or organization. The Slow Flowers podcast is engineered and edited by Andrew Brenlin. Learn more about his work at soundbodymovement.com. Music.